Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When it comes to addiction, I approach it with care. We routinely expect people to simply quit an addiction, but it needs so much more compassion than that. Most people become addicted because there is a hole that needs filling, something is missing. A sense of disconnection and trauma is present and we don't necessarily have the language or the time or the compassion to deal with those kind of addictions in people. As my guest David Poses says, addiction is a symptom of a much bigger problem. David is the author of The Weight of Air, a story of his experiences with drug addiction and recovery. It is his story, a story of self-compassion, tragedy and humour. A paradox to some, but the skill that David possesses, as you will soon hear, is to make his story so wholeheartedly available to people that it all makes sense in the end. But who is David Poses? So he is a writer. His book, The Weight of Air, a story of the lies about addiction and the truth about recovery, is a book I will continue to go back to in my own self-development as I progress on my journey. He is also a speaker an activist and after 20 years of hiding his struggle with depression and opioids he started opening up and challenging the disregard of science and evidence in drug treatment prevention and policy we get into it government sanctioned biases around drug legislation his own trouble with heroin his relationship struggles and his will to continue surviving and thriving even when everything was thrown at him He's also incredibly funny and you will enjoy this episode. And FYI, this episode contains topics that might be triggering related to drug use. So please prioritize self-care and proceed through this conversation with caution and compassion for yourself. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. Share the episode far and wide. Now, it's time to talk in a heart-to-heart with the man himself, David Poses. Welcome, David, to Time to Talk. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. No worries. I wanted to speak to you about The Weight of Air, the story of the lies about addiction and the truth about recovery. It just looks at such a powerful, powerful memoir, because whenever men are speaking about recovery and addiction, that tends to be where you're coming at. And I really want to get into your story. So tell me your story. Where do we begin with you? Where do we begin? Um, well, I mean, I guess it might be worth mentioning that um, I nobody knew any of this stuff about me um, until a couple of years ago. I mean, I, I um, led everyone in my life to believe that I got uh, sober and was was sober and happy since um, I was eighteen, uh, and I knew that I wasn't the exception to the uh, you know quote unquote junkie stereotype. Um, and as the opioid crisis started occupying more news headlines and people started dying. In America, I felt like, um, you know, I really like my, my silence was kind of working against the changes that I wanted to see in the world. And, um, you know, how could I expect anybody else to talk openly about their struggles if I was denying the existence of mine? So um, so I wrote this book because I, I genuinely believed that um, my story could help others and and that we needed to spread truth amidst the uh, misinformation. Um and I mean, you know, I, I was, uh, I had a successful career in private equity, like the absolute last thing that I needed was, uh, you know, to start coming clean about this stuff. Um, I'm a very shy and secure person in real life. I mean, I was a very sad kid uh, before depression entered my, you know, vernacular. Um, my mom used to say, why are you so sad? Don't you want to be happy? Uh, you know, like it was a choice. And um, I knew I didn't want to be sad. I didn't know why I was sad. I didn't know how not to be sad. I didn't know how not to talk about it. I was, you know, terribly ashamed. Um, my parents got divorced when I was three or four. My mom started taking me to, to weekly um, appointments with a psychiatrist. I acted like everything was fine. 
Um, and then, you know, I would go home and lie in bed at night and wish for a terminal disease. Um, I mean, I, I, I just, I thought I was broken. They, they took you to a psychiatrist because of the divorce. Because of the divorce and, oh, okay. and she knew, you know, and I was so sad. In fifth grade, uh, this cop came to my school. We had this program uh, in the 80s called the D.A.R.E. program that Nancy Reagan started, you know, just say no to drugs. Um, and uh, so, so this cop explained that uh, you can't drive a car if you drink alcohol. Uh, pot makes you stupid. Cocaine makes you angry. Um, and, you know, I, th I, I, I certainly didn't need any uh, impediment to driving headlong into a tree, which was, you know, my lifelong ambition at that point. Um, I didn't need anything that was going to make me stupid or angry. Um, he told us about this kid who took acid and, and thought he was an orange and peeled off his skin. So, you know, I no thank you to acid. Um, and then he said, heroin is the worst drug. Uh, it's a, it's a painkiller that's so strong that you don't have any feelings. And that, um, I mean, that was the first time I felt hope like in my life. I grew up in the suburbs. Um, you, you know, this is decades before the opioid crisis. Heroin was like, you know, trying to find, you know, nuclear grade plutonium. By the beginning of high school, you know, my friends were smoking weed and drinking and, and I tried uh, alcohol and pot and I really just, I couldn't stand the feeling of, of being fucked. I got drunk once in my life and, and that was enough. Um, and uh, my psychiatrist figured out that I was depressed by then. So they were prescribing, you know, all kinds of antidepressants, but nothing worked. Um, and I mean, I was, I was really at the end of my rope. I mean, and I kind of had this deal with myself that I was going to track down heroin. And if it did everything that, if it lived up to the hype, then, you know, that's, that was how I was going to live. And if it didn't, I was, I was going to jump off a roof. Um, and so, um, you know, suffice it to say it, it, it did exactly, uh, you know, what I thought it was going to do. Um, but the, the lifestyle was miserable. You're lying and, and uh, you know, getting your ass kicked and getting ripped off. And, you know, you have no idea what you're buying and driving to the Bronx every day. I was terrified of, of needles, but my tolerance kind of made that impractical pretty quick. I just, I, I, I couldn't stand it, but I didn't know how to live without it. So I, I tried to stop a few times. It didn't really work. My mom went to Florida for a week when my brother was in boarding school when I was 18 and I, I gave my friend, uh, my best friend, my, my car and my wallet. And I just, I set myself up for a, you know, no exit, cold turkey, you know, this is it kind of moment. So that, that is um, actually where the, the book starts. And as far as everybody in my life was concerned for the longest time, that was the last time I used heroin. From there, I ended up telling my parents what was going on. Uh, they sent me to rehab. Um, Hazelden, which in America is like the, uh, or at the time, at least it was, you know, the Harvard of rehabs. Um, okay. I'm very proud of it. You know? <laughs> so, um, and I didn't know anybody who went to rehab. I knew that AA was a thing, but I didn't know, you know, other than what, it, what, it, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. And so when I got there and they were like, oh, you have a disease and it's going to be, um, you know, terminal unless you put your life and will in God's hands and work the steps. I was like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? I mean, it just, it, it didn't make any sense to me. My mom had had cancer. She didn't ask for it. God didn't help her. Um, I chose to stick needles in my arms. And you're telling me I'm a you know degenerate junkie and God is going to help me, but he's not helping my mom. Like, you know, it, it just, it, it, it didn't make sense. I was way too pragmatic and they were, you know, far too long on faith and short on fact, but that didn't bode well, you know, my kind of pushing back against. And, and their comeback is always, you know, it works. You're in denial, um, you know, uh, rationalizing is addict mentality. And I said, you know, my addiction is a symptom. Um, depression is my problem. And they're going, no, depression's an excuse. Addiction is the problem. And like for every other condition, um, physical or emotional, you know, we identify the wound and we treat it so that you can heal. With addiction, we tell you like explicitly to ignore the wound because it's, it's an excuse. <clears throat> um, and addiction is the problem. And so the idea that sobriety was the answer to my problem was just like, you know, if my foot got chopped off and I was using morphine to ease the pain, nobody in their right mind is gonna tell me, um, oh, the morphine is causing your pain. You're never gonna feel better until you stop taking it. You know, like it, the, the, the mentality in rehab was the inverse of everything, like irrevocable scientific facts. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, I didn't wanna be an addict, but I knew that this wasn't gonna work. Um, so, uh, so I, I, you know, and, and they're telling my mom that like, 
Um, I'm going to start chugging hand sanitizer if I get desperate enough for a high because I'm an addict and you know, all this stuff. Um, so, uh, so, so the book kind of goes through, um, all of that. Uh, I, I got kicked out of rehab for making out with a girl. They sent me to a halfway house on this, like, you know, tough love ultimatum. Um, I left there after, after a week. Um, I I won't spoil any surprises. Yeah. I was going to say, so the rehab center Hazelden, you were saying, it's uh is it it's very faith heavy it's a well, very faith it was a very faith faith heavy yeah, um I, center i mean yeah i mean the 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 predominant model um i mean you know medically assisted treatment is the gold standard for opioid addiction right now in america but the predominant model is faith and abstinence 12 step you know whether it's alcoholic it's anonymous exactly or na or some you know variation of that um, theme that's that's kind of you know the brand that that everybody knows um, and you know for the longest time um, I knew that it I mean I knew, I knew it didn't make sense for me and I knew other people for whom it didn't make sense for but only recently like in the past year these studies have come out that show that faith and abstinence treatment has a has um, increases your risk of overdose relapse and death while medically assisted treatment dramatically cuts it um, you know, but at the time, 25 years ago, I was like, you know, blasphemy for saying, uh, you know, having these opinions. Um, so, uh, so, you know, I was, I was terribly ashamed that it didn't work for me. Like I felt like something was terribly wrong with me, or maybe I was, you know, an outlier and, um, you know, they, they have me confused with somebody else, but I knew that until I treated the chopped off foot problem, I, I, you know, the, the compulsion, like sobriety cures the physical addiction, like the the medical condition, but um, the compulsion to use drugs, which is how addiction happens, that's not going to go away unless you treat the wound. Um, So, you know, but I was, I was too ashamed of the depression. And I just, I, I, I basically, you know, uh, held my breath for as long as I could uh, with sobriety. And when my pain threshold reached its limit, I I went out and, um, you know, and, and I scored and I tried Mm. to avoid it. Um, and it was just, you know, more than a decade of of one relapse to the next and, and holding my breath. And, you know, when I was on heroin, um, I mean, you know, nobody knew, um, nobody even suspected. I built a successful career. Everything was great. When I was sober, I got fired and, yeah, and you know, which, my life fell apart. Which is different to how it's been shown to yes. people, you know, to everybody, well, right, to, but, everybody to everybody else. They, 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 there's always this depiction of what a heroin user looks like. Yes. Um, through films and things. Yeah, but but we, you know, I mean, like we, these myths are debunked in everyday life. And I mean, you know, are there these very extreme examples? Of course there are. I mean, you know, that's how everything is. But when you when you take a step back and you think about it, like, you know, nobody wakes up at, you know, in the morning and, and starts guzzling booze all day and functions. I mean, you know, we know that, right? And you're going to smell it and whatever, right? So we know that all over the world, there's millions of people who are prescribed opioids. Um, and we not only know they can function, we know they need opioids specifically to function. Nobody says like, oh my God, grandma's on OxyContin again, you know, don't go near her. She's going to you know, steal your VCR. Um, so we know these things and yet we believe these myths and I'm, and I'm not really, sure. you know, we're, we're always stunned when we find out some, we, we think we can spot a heroin addict a mile away. And then we find out somebody is on heroin. We're like, oh my God, I had no idea. You know, he was such a good person, you know, blah, blah, blah. So so there's just kind of this chasm of, of, of just this absence of logic um, between what we believe, the, these myths, and, and reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I had <laughs> this time at work, um, you know, I, I was an IV heroin user and I shot up in the bathroom one day and, you know, I'm, I'm in like a suit and tie type of situation. And, yeah. and, and this blood started collecting in my elbow, in my shirt. Oh, no. and, I'm, and I'm in this meeting and, uh, and I, I just shot up in the bathroom. And uh, this guy goes, um, oh, my God, you're, you're, it looks like blood on your sleeve. And I go, yeah, I just shot up in the bathroom. And everybody started to laugh. Um, and and I, I, I made something about going to the doctor and getting you know, blood yeah, taken yeah, yeah. or whatever. But, like, you know. Um, you, masked, I mean, you masked it with humor. And it, people, yeah, took, and people and took it at that face value. And just they did. And it's, yeah. And, you know, I mean, there's no, you know, you, you, you can smell it if somebody's smoking cigarettes or drinking or smoking. Heroin doesn't smell. I mean, you know, the, the, you're not going to know unless, you know, the, the, the you know, pupils get very pinned. Um, but even if somebody sees that, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not like I'm walking around drooling. Also, the idea that, you know, painkillers cause pain and, and it, you know, it's this miserable existence. Like, 
any, if anybody was going to be suspicious, they would have been suspicious when I was sober because that's when, you know, things were, were bad. So, um, you know, so I was living in New York and I just, I felt like I, you know, I needed some kind of geographic cure. I had to just remove myself from any possibility of scoring or else I was going to, um, you know, keep, keep going through these patterns. So, um, so, uh, to make a long story short, you know, I, I, I moved around, I met my wife, um, you know, the, the newness of love kind of, uh, you know, made everything okay for a while until it didn't. Um, and, uh, she got pregnant and I was still, you know, having this problem and nobody knew. And I just, I, I told myself when, when my daughter was born, you know, I, I'm not doing this anymore. And, and I believed it because it was one of those, you know, moments of, um, you know, you, you have this real clarity. Mm. Um, but the thing about that is, um, you know, wanting something like you're not going to, you know, you're not going to will that away. Uh, mm. I could want it as much as I wanted to, but I still, you know, I had been sober, but I had yet to begin to recover. And those words are used so interchangeably that I really didn't know the difference. And this false hope of like life gets better when you're sober and, you know, it just takes time and whatever, like, you know, I mean, the, the brain, the, we know now that your neurotransmitters don't necessarily rewire. Um, you know, the mechanics of a hit of heroin is the same as the mechanics of like, you know, a hand of blackjack or, or any other, you know, drug or sex or whatever. But opioids have a natural target in your brain, the opiate receptors. That's, that's the only type of substance that, that does that. And so, you know, it creates new opiate receptors with every dose or hit or what, you know, whether you have a prescription or not whether you're trying to kill emotional pain or physical pain, heroin doesn't know if you just had knee surgery, or if you're, you know, miserably fucking depressed, um, you know, we do. And so, you know, we have that idea, but that's not actually how it works. So, um, so when my daughter was, um, you know, uh, a, a little after, you know, one years old, I, I, I fell back into this, you know, really dark hole of depression. Um, and I knew what would make it go away. And I was just struck by this really sad irony that if I committed suicide, um, my family, you know, my, my wife and daughter, everybody would sympathize. Oh my God, this is so sad. It's terrible, you know, whatever. Um, if I went out and got heroin to avoid killing myself, I'm a fucking asshole. They would take my kid away. So I, I ended up, um, I, I knew about buprenorphine uh, even before I tried heroin for the first time. My friend who, who gave me um, my first hit was uh, participated in the, in the clinical trials in New York before. Okay, you know, we'd have to get around. into that. What is buprenorphine? Oh, um, so uh, buprenorphine is, is one of two medications that are, that are proven to dramatically um, uh, cut the risk of overdose, overdose relapse and, and death. Um, it is a partial opioid agonist. Um, so basically it, it, um, it kind of mimics the effect on your opiate. It's like a warm blanket on your opiate receptors, telling them everything's cool. You got all this heroin, even though you don't, um, you know, and so you, you can, you can function. And so, um, you know, I've, I've been on it since 2008. I'm on it right now. There are factions of AA and other, you know, people who consider it, uh, invalidating my sobriety. I mean, I never kept track of sober time. I really could give less than a fraction of a fuck if anybody, thinks that invalidates my sobriety. I, I care about recovery. Um, I am functioning at my absolute best uh, since I started it. You know, it, it, it has the antidepressant effect of, um, you know, raising the basement of my pain threshold. And, um, you know, I got into therapy, so I, I have a lot more tools to deal with that. But, you know, sobriety was like holding my breath. Mm. So I couldn't begin to unpack the emotional baggage and heal without buprenorphine. Um, Although it is the gold standard in America, it, it, it's subject to a lot of stigma and misunderstanding. You know, there's a lot of people who think, oh, it's just as bad as heroin. Mm -hmm. I tell those people, you know, look, ask for it after your next hip replacement surgery and let me know how that works out. <clears throat> so again, it's, it's, it's all that, you know, if we didn't moralize drugs, truth would be so obvious, but we do. Mm -hmm. And for the first 10 years I was on buprenorphine, um, I didn't tell anybody, uh, not, even, not even my wife. I mean, I, you know, I was too ashamed eventually I just, I was so overwhelmed with, with the guilt and the shame of the secrecy and people were dying, you know, all around me. And the opioid crisis was, you know, it, it it's like, I don't know why it's easier for people to believe that bad people use painkillers than people in pain use painkillers when painkillers have been in use longer than written language. And that's the only thing they do, <laughs> you know? Um, 
So all of this, like, you know, addiction doesn't make sense. Of course it doesn't when you look at it through this lens of, of bad people use drugs and make excuses for using drugs and, you know, like all this bullshit that isn't true. Moralistic so, judgment. And that's, and, yeah. that's what, and that's what we've been like, indoctrinated with as a society, right? It's, yeah, yeah. So, you're sick because so, of that. Exactly. Yeah. And it's so clear. I mean, look, nobody wakes up when they're 16 and says, like, I'm a happy, well-adjusted kid. I have a, I'm desperate to break the law. If I start using heroin, it will give me an excuse to break the law every day. That's what I'm going to do. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, there's always some, um, you know, underlying pain, uh, that triggers the compulsion to use painkillers. I mean, you know, look, if, you, if you're, if you're using painkillers compulsively, you're killing pain, whether you have a prescription or not, you know, who knows, but when we say, no, your pain is an excuse, we're completely invalidating the reasons you're using. We're not actually helping the problem at all. And, and it's going to persist. So I just felt like I've got to do something. I mean, I have all this information. Um, I hope it's, you know, useful for people. I, I you know, I, 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 I feel like, um, I mean, I don't really say this out in the world because I feel like some kind of like braggadocio asshole, but like, I, I believe that this will help people and that's why I'm doing it. Um, you know, it's certainly not a get rich quick scheme and, and um, you know, I'm not, I'm not crazy about, you know, talking about myself. So, um, yeah. but it, it, it seems to be resonating. Um, and I mean, I got very lucky. My wife, um, I mean, I, I was prepared for her to tell me to go away and, and uh, you know, never come back. And she was extraordinarily compassionate and understanding. Uh, my family was, I mean, I lost a few friends. Um, mm-hmm. My career in, in private equity uh, came to a, a very abrupt end um, oh, when cool. I, you know, outed myself. Um, and, uh, you know, but, um, but this is, I have, I mean, it's not a choice. I have to do this. Um, and so, you know, writing was always kind of, I mean, I wouldn't call it a passion. It was always more like a bodily urge. Like I you know, have to do it and then I feel better. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I'd written, um, seven, seven novels, uh, before this book and I never shared them or, you know, I was, I was too afraid of failure. And, mm. um, and with this, just things happened very quickly. I got an agent, people were interested. I sold the book, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, I mean, I guess, you know, that, that pretty much brings us to the present. Yeah. Um, what an amazing story. It's, um, I think what kind of comes, what kind of comes out to me quite a bit on that. And thank you so much for sharing that with me is, um, the fact that when it comes to men and these, these, these elements of vulnerability in these places, it's so shrouded in secrets and and yeah. shame and i think that that's something that i'm kind of like really interested in just as a you know the the, the stigmatization of all of the things that, that that we go through and the idea of you know you being addicted is your fault and yeah. having those addictions are your fault but do you You're ever weak. yeah <laughs> do you do you do you step back and just say to yourself like okay do you like with all the experience with you and your psychiatrist, was there ever a conversation about the 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 cause or the root of it? And no, no, or, no. Or, or, or is that do you find that a useless pursuit? Sort of thing? Oh no, I don't find that useless at all. I mean, I, I I begged for that. I think the problem is people. You know, the minute drugs enter the conversation, people just lose their minds, and and drugs are the problem. We got to get you off the drugs. Uh, you know, nobody. I mean, look, my my parents. Um, I mean, I was too ashamed to tell them why I was using heroin, but they were too angry and outraged to ask. If somebody would have stopped and said, what are you trying to accomplish here? You know, we, we might've gotten somewhere, but everybody assumes that, that the heroin is the problem. And then in rehab, when I said, you know, look, depression is the problem. They're like, no, it's not. You're full of shit. You're an addict. Um, so, you know, and, and that, that conversation doesn't happen. And I think for years, you know, I went around saying things like heroin is pure evil, you know, it steals your soul because that's what I thought people wanted to hear. But by in doing so, you know, I'm, I'm invalidating my own reasons for using it. If it, if it's pure evil, then what am I doing? You know? Um, and, and I, I, I agree with you, um, with the, you know, the, the, um, the kind of macho, you know, male, uh, you know, that, that problem. And I, and I, I always saw it as, you know, we know that we can't will physical pain away. You know, you sprain your ankle and it's like, shit, dude, you sprained your ankle, you know, you're walking around with crutches, whatever. It's like, you know, you can be tough about it, but, but we still know that you, you're not going to snap out of that. But emotional pain is always this snap out of it. You know, you got to decide to be happy and all that kind of business. So that double standard, I believe, you know, sits on top of the addiction problem. Um, And there's there's so much stigma of drugs. I mean, you know, look, it so happened that heroin was my, you know, uh, that's what what saved me from suicide. If I took up marathon running and that was my thing, 
nobody would have said to me, you know, oh my God, the running is causing all your problems. You got to stop running because that's really, you know, that that's your problem. You're not going to be, you know, you're going to be depressed forever until you stop running. So like swap drugs with some healthy, and I'm not saying heroin is healthy. I mean, this is not a, you know, paid endorsement for heroin by any stretch. No, um, but, you know, I, but yeah. I, I see what you're saying. And I think that, I think it's, I think we are, to an extent, I don't know if you agree with me on this. I feel like we are kind of going through a kind of perspective shift yes. as a society because I feel like when we look at drugs and obviously, you know, there's this whole the whole idea about psychedelics now and, you know, we've got CBD and, and, and yep. those particular elements and, you know, and I would like to think that we are looking at addiction. I have no data to back this up. I'm just, this is just what yep. I'm observing. You're right. um, yes. And it's like we're looking at addiction as, you know, if somebody was addicted to running, it would be it would be an obsession and it would definitely like yeah. damage the person because, yes. it, sure. because you know it's and it, and it's always um an, a response to a particular kind of traumatic experience or something that we're trying to hide from or or run from coping mechanism absolutely a coping mechanism exactly so it's 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 really it's really interesting where we're at now but it's just this idea and especially what kind of struck me of what your story was the conversation around drugs when you were 10 and it was this idea of fear 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 peel your skin off makes you angry kills pain but it's the worst drug ever and And i'm just like and and i'm just like well yeah i mean anything that you know drugs you know obviously misused and in in the way that they're kind of distributed to human beings you know like because obviously is it not morphine that is Opio- opioid and opioid morphine i mean you know right opioid, so it is used in it's a, yeah i mean it's it's a category of drug and like i mean this is part of the misunderstanding is like mm. um heroin is to you know vicodin is to codeine as whiskey is to wine is to beer right so if you've had codeine or vicodin it's like saying well you know i got drunk on beer but i wouldn't touch whiskey you know that stuff is crazy um so yeah. people you know, know what it feels like. Um, and, you know, we just, we, we believe these myths. Um, and I mean, right now, you know, with, with the overdose crisis, I mean, our illicit supply is toxic right now as a, re- in response to demand. I mean, if you're a distributor of anything, whether it's orange juice or fentanyl, um, you want the smallest volume with the highest profit margin. Like, you know, it doesn't take a, a any halfway intelligent person knows that. Um, so the idea that there's so much demand for this stuff, or there's so much, you know, uh, why? Like, we, we should ask, why is, you know, I mean, if the cartel started selling shit sandwiches, there wouldn't be a shit sandwich epidemic, yeah. you know? I think everybody knows that. And yet we're like, why is there all this dope on the street? Um, and so people are dying right now. I mean, in America, I think it's like 270 people a day. It's the leading cause of death for Americans under 50. Um, overdose is an overly potent dose, right? Potency is measured by volume, um, same as alcohol. And so, you know, if, if, uh, if you can, can you safely drink a pint of beer without dying? Okay. Yes. All right. Could you safely drink a pint of methanol or grain alcohol without dying? Probably not. Right. So if, if I, if I give you a full, a full pint glass and you don't know what's in it, um, you can't prevent overdose if it turns out to be methanol or, or grain alcohol. And that's how people are dying of drug overdose. I mean, illegal drugs are involved in the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of overdose because potency is unknown. You, you don't know what you're getting. It's like pouring you know, from a bottle and you don't know it's methanol. And there's this massive misunderstanding. And the easiest way to prevent overdose is to know what's in your pint glass, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, oh, it's methanol. I'd better not drink that. Um, nobody's asking for the fentanyl that's going to kill me, you know? And... and um, so, you know, I'm, I'm out there, you know, screaming about this stuff because it's, it's the right thing to do. I mean, and when this many people are dying and all of these fears of, I mean, we saw it during prohibition with alcohol, um, and we know what happens with unregulated markets, the idea that, you know, look, everything is safer when it's legal and regulated, like right down to nuclear weapons. So the idea that somehow drugs are going to be more dangerous at a time when this many people are dying, like it's complete fucking insanity. Um, and you know, the idea that it's going to lead to widespread use or whatever. I mean, look, alcohol is legal. Alcohol is the most dangerous substance you can put in your body. Yeah. It's everywhere. I don't load up on beer every time at the gas station or the supermarket. 
you know, and I say this to people and they're like, well, I don't either, you know, I'm a, I'm a bad example, you know, whatever. And it's like, everybody's a bad example. That's how it is. Like if meth was legal and you don't know anybody who's going to start sticking meth in their jugular vein, then guess what? The, the myth of, of widespread use is a myth. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and, and the bottom line is when something is dangerous, we find ways to make it safer. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't make bike helmets illegal because, you know, you might, because, because uh, you know, crashing on your bike might cause a head injury. So we're not giving you a, a helmet. That would be, you know, crazy. We have this attitude with drugs because we moralize drugs. I mean, don't you want people to be safe? Like just say no, doesn't work. People have been using drugs since the beginning of time. Yeah. The idea that you're not going to get somebody to stop using drugs. So your next choice is either they die or you'd prefer them to be safe. You know, I mean, in, in the eighties, I grew up in the eighties. Um, it was the height of the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. There was a high school in New Jersey um, that was giving condoms or making condoms available to students. And I remember seeing it on the news um, and the superintendent and, you know, all these, the PTA and the parents, they were all like, you know, what are you doing? You're encouraging teen sex, whatever. And the, and the guy goes, we are actually, we are actively discouraging teen sex. We are telling our kids not to have sex. However, in the unlikely event that a hundred percent of them don't listen to us, we would prefer that they don't die of AIDS. That's what's going on right now. Like, yeah. you know, in, in the unlikely event that somebody wants to use drugs when you tell them not to, would you prefer that they live or die? And and it it's it is a zero sum game. I mean, you know, people are dying all over the place. Like, what the fuck are we doing? Really? Mm. What what can we change? What can we change? Because it's like, yeah, I I can look at it now and be like, yeah, I agree hundred percent with what you're with what you're saying, and I think that that is something that is so important. Like, we need to really, we do need to shift. We know, I know what we need to do. I know right. what we need to do. But what can we do in order for us to be able to kind of have some sort of some some sort of say? I really, I really would love for there to be less addicted people two things that are causing them harm in general so depend like we just have to just across the board yeah just what is causing you harm let's let's reduce that level of addiction and get to the core of that but this stigmatization and as you said this moralistic judgment and this this, all this stuff it kind of it it it, it's very paternalistic and very shame bringing and all of these different things so what 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 can be done Um, what do what do you think needs to be done I, I mean, a, a lot. I mean, really, this, the system needs a crate of dynamite uh, and it needs to be rebuilt because, you know, the, I mean, in America, level, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the war on drugs, we're spending uh, 12 times more on interdiction on like, you know, finding drugs in, in the cartels and intercepting them than we are on treatment. Right. So that's just stupid. Um if we were to legalize and regulate drugs and sell them like alcohol, they would not only be safer, we would put the cartels out of business and less people would die. And we would recoup a $106 billion positive net swing that we could pour into treatment. Okay. Okay. So that, I mean, that's, you know, one thing, um, the doctors, I mean, addiction has been so siloed off from medicine because of these, you know, religious, uh, groups over the years that, um, you know, there's a million and a half physicians in America right now. Um, of that million and a half, there are 1,183 that specialize in addiction medicine, right? So that's, if there's 20 something million people struggling with addiction, that's a one to 18,875 ratio. That's not enough, obviously. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and this is the leading cause of death. You can find a doctor to treat the most obscure disease that nobody has. You know, there's five doctors in your town <laughs> that, that specialize in that. Mm-hmm. Um, in these rural places where it's really bad, you know, there's nobody to treat it. Um, and you know, I mean, look, I, I, what Purdue Pharma did is disgusting on every level. No question. Well, who we did were, Purdue Pharma? Purdue Pharma, the, the company that put OxyContin, yep. um, you know, around in America. But, um, you know, we were primed for this crisis long before they showed up with the OxyContin. Um, you know, and so I think we need to step back and say, why are we all on drugs? Um, why are we doing this? Because we've got to treat those issues. We've got to make treatment more available. I mean, you know, buprenorphine and methadone save lives. AA and, uh, you know, the faith in abstinence has a better chance of killing you. Anywhere you live in America right now, like any address, you can get uh, fentanyl, you know, deadly fentanyl delivered to that address in under 24 hours. I don't care where you live. 
you can't get methadone delivered there under any circumstances, you know, at all. You have to go to a clinic every day. And if you want buprenorphine, it's not so easy to get. You know, you gotta you gotta find a doctor. Um, it's it's a whole thing. So the idea of we want, you know, we say we want to save lives, but we're doing everything like we couldn't have built a better system for death. We're saying we want to help addicts get well, but we're there's you know, I mean, every re, every life saving, harm reducing resource is, is stigmatized, criminalized, and restricted. Um, you know, so we we really, um, but we're not willing to look at at the system that we've built and say, holy shit, this is actually really completely backwards. Um, you know, we've got to change it. I mean, if if our response to the opi to the to COVID was like the opioid crisis, uh, you know, we would know why. Um, w- you know, we 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 certainly you know, and and we're blaming people for their own deaths, and we're not making the vaccine available. And we're arresting you if you ask about it and, you know, so forth. Like, we would know why people are dying. And we'd be like, this is completely bunkers. Um, you know, but with the drugs, we're, we're like, oh, my God, I have no idea. You know, we're doing everything we can. We're, we're, not, we're not doing shit. I mean, and the more restrictions we put on prescription opioids, I mean, that's, that's, those are the safer drugs. You know, I mean, that's the difference between your pint of methanol and, and you know, you're buying a beer and it says 2%, you know, ABV on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the more we restrict that, the more people have to have no choice but to go to the illicit markets, and and that's what's killing people. Um, you know, yeah. And we're, and we're discouraging people from from methadone and and um, and buprenorphine because we have this idea that like, oh, it's an extension of your addiction and blah blah blah. And and um, you know, and so when people get off of that, I mean, I I if I've met a different set of parents every week for two years that had a kid who was weaned off buprenorphine, they believed all the shit that they heard from these you know experts without medical qualifications, mm-hmm. and then the kid has no tolerance and died. I mean. Experts without medical um, qualifications who are treating medical conditions with magical thinking, that's that's the definition of quack medicine. And yet we accept it for addiction, like what else would we possibly do? You know, mm. you you if you if you swap addiction for you know medical condition, any medical condition, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and people know that. And then you put addiction in there and they're like, oh yes, of course the people who don't recover are those who are, you know, um, constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves and, you know, these bad people and, and so forth. So, I mean, yeah. we really just have to, yeah. I just think that it's just with all these things, that the more people that are in these positions that are influencing policy are people that have been through these, these experiences, the better. And I think yeah. that like, we, we don't have that. And I'm not sure we will ever see that because it's always these pseudo, these pseudo um, yeah. kind of offices that, we, that, we, that are we happening. Won't. I mean, the, the, you know, when I started doing this, um, I mean, you know, I have young kids, my kids are, are, are 11 and 15. Okay. I was very concerned that, you know, I'm out there with these very unpopular positions. I don't want, you know, anything bad to happen to them or people to, you know, tell them your dad is crazy or whatever. I, I knew that people were going to not like what I was saying. Um, and I, I, I really, um, I've, I've met a lot of people who, who start off with like, you're out of your mind. And then they, they change their tune. And the problem, wh- what I see a lot, though, is somebody will say to me, I mean, I, I've had interviews with people who will tell me before recording starts, I agree with everything that you're saying, but I can't say that because I don't want to get fired. I don't want people to think whatever, you know, you're talking about legalizing drugs, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I say the same thing to them. Like, that, that's great that, you know, disagreeing with, agreeing with me privately and disagreeing with me publicly, like, you might as well tell me to go fuck myself right now because, Change doesn't happen un- unless you know we we are going out and, and saying this. Like I'm very lucky in the sense that I don't have a job to get fired from. Mm-hmm. You know, at this point, I mean, this is my life right now, so yeah. I'm not worried about that, and I understand it. I mean, I didn't say this stuff for the longest time because I was worried about getting fired, so yeah. I get it. But now that I see it, um, you know, they're, they're, people are dying. Like, there's nothing more important than this right now, and mm-hmm. and people just have to get over themselves and say, look, this is the right thing. And that was what I said to my kids. Like, I, I'm, I'm doing this because it's the right thing. I'm not spewing crazy conspiracy theories. This is all backed up with science. These are facts. And, and we're saving lives. It's where science meets lived experience. Mm-hmm. So can you just, like, run, run through, like, how did that kind of happen? You know when you said that you were at work and, and when they found out that, <laughs> ended, that ended, abru- ended abruptly? And what was, what was that like? What was that period of time like? I can't talk about it um i can tell you that i let it out basically Mm -hmm. um soon thereafter i was no longer employed um i will leave it to you to interpret that however you like 
the reason I and the reason I ask is just because it's literally what you said about when you when you're in interviews and people would say they publicly or they privately agree but publicly can't do that and my thing is if I'm looking at it and I'm thinking I'm what's up I've hired somebody and they are going through this level of addiction or this this thing I'm I'm curious as to why that is happening and and figuring that out now I think that it becomes this it becomes this challenge then it, it becomes this challenge where we we don't have that room for that level of kind of compassionate conversation for somebody when when especially if somebody is suffering you know if somebody comes to you and they're suffering and they're really depressed because they're grieving or they're going through a divorce or they are you know so 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 they're finding um you know coping mechanisms to go through those things and they come to an employer and then that and that doesn't really and then it just ends up not being the result that they wanted and you know yeah. in the worst case scenario demoted lack of respect in the in the place or out of a job then yeah. it then it just it just stokes that fire of that the secrecy and the shame and the you know, and, and all of that and this is the and this is the thing that i can't this is the thing i can't i understand i understand why it happens i can't right. understand how we continue to Right. Well, I mean, yeah. And there's, I mean, in America, there's laws, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's considered discrimination if you, um, you know, fire somebody for having any kind of disability, um, you know, which, which this is considered, but, you know, it's, it's very different. I mean, you know, look, if you, there's, uh, you know, the family medical leave act. So like if, if you, if, if we're working at the same place and you're pregnant, which I know you can't be, but whatever, you know, and you call in and you say like, I'm pregnant, I need to take some time off, you know, no problem, they're gonna have a party for you and you're gonna get all kinds of cards, right? Um, and then I call in and I say like, oh, hey, I'm, I'm addicted to heroin, I need to take some time off. Uh, you can bet that there will be a different response to my announcement than yours. Yeah. Um, you know, and everybody knows that. And so, you know, we, we uh, uh, you know, we're, we're more reluctant to announce this stuff. I mean, I, I didn't need treatment. Um, I mean, you know, this is, this, this happened, you know, more than a decade after I, I, uh, you know, started with the buprenorphine and, and my life was fine. It was just talking about talking about it out in the world. Mm. Um, you know, but, um, I mean, really, I, you know, to me, it's, it's the, the death right now and the problems are caused by hate and ignorance mm -hmm. more than, more than any, I mean, drug laws are the problem. Stigma is the problem. It's not, you know, no drug is more dangerous than, than the drug laws and the stigma. I mean, that's, what's killing people. You know, if you know, like buprenorphine is saving my life right now. And people are saying, you know, well, why, um, nobody would say, you know, well, your, your diet, you know, insulin, your, your diabetes is clearly under control right now. When are you going to stop taking that life-saving insulin? Yeah. You know? yeah. It reminds me of Breaking Bad. Um, and I'm, have you seen the series? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it just reminds me of Breaking Bad where, um, oh, I forgot what his name is. Uh, Ryan Cranston? No, 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 no. Yeah. What is the, is it Jesse? Jesse, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah, and it's just Jesse Pinkman. Uh, Jesse Pinkman. That's it. Because I was thinking, is that his actual uh, real name, or is his? No, his it's uh, Aaron, yeah, yeah. Aaron Paul. Aaron yeah. Paul, yeah. Um, yeah. So Jesse, and it was just like, and my heart went out to him because every time he went back home, and to get that stability of like, oh, yeah. I'm being yeah. back, I'm back home. This is, you know, when you should be with mom and dad, you should be in that thing. You're setting the table. You're trying to, right. and then they have this yes. shifty kind of like. Do we right. want him here? Is he doing it? Da, 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 da. And I'm just like, that's your son, like regardless. Yeah. And I know, and it kind of just and it and it puts all what you said into perspective because it's like this kid could not get a break. <laughs> like, well, but that's also, you know? I mean, that's that's the you know the tough love that's baked into this. Like, if 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 he had cancer, nobody is tough love doesn't cure cancer. Everybody knows that. Nobody's going to be like, we can't live no, with you. They get they get, they get overbearing sympathy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you get chicken soup and and uh, you know uh, sympathy cards and, and people um, walking on eggshells around you. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, nobody nobody's going to throw you out because your cancer came back. You know, mm. I mean, and we have these ideas of like you know you have to hit rock bottom before you get treatment. I mean, could you imagine that with a heart condition? Mm. We're not doing shit for you until you have your heart attack. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, what? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. yeah. So, so, what don't we know? Like, not 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 what not what don't we know about addiction, but more so. What are some of the things that we need for a good recovery? I mean, really, um, I think it's vital that we, um, 
you know, for most people, if, if you hear the way you uh, sound when you talk about drugs, you'll know why your kid isn't going to you and telling you, you know, uh, they're having, they're, they're struggling. So, I mean, I think we need to be more educated about what it actually is versus the myths. We need to be more understanding. We need to recognize that this is life or death right now, like mm. for real. And, um, you know, the idea of like, we're, we're going to throw you out. You have to hit rock bottom. You know, all of these myths are contributing to, I mean, look, the war on drugs has been going on for 50 years. Um, drugs, overdose fatalities keep surging. Drugs have never been cheaper, more powerful, more plentiful. I mean, everything is getting worse. I don't, I, how anybody could say, oh, this is clearly working. Like, I, I just don't understand that. So something is terribly wrong. In fact, everything is terribly wrong. And if we don't start to say, what are we doing wrong and what can we change? Mm. Um, it's going to be a disaster. I mean, and, and the parents that I meet uh, who lost a kid to overdose, I mean, everybody gets it when it's too late. And that's really the, you know, that, that is what's so tragic about this, you know, because getting through to a parent before that, where, where you can say, you know, look, I, I get that your kid is struggling, but you know, you just harm reduction. There's something to be said for harm reduction. Keep them safe. You know, don't throw them out. Stuff like that. It's like, well, I'm at the end of my rope. They stole my VCR and they're stealing shit and they're selling stuff and you know whatever. Like, um, I get it. I mean, you know, look, there's something to be said for accountability, no question. Um, but some understanding and some awareness that you're really making a choice between letting them die or keeping them safe. And um, you know, it, it, so much of this is with the very best of intentions informed by these myths that, that, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, and I yeah. think, you know, what we can do is, I mean, you know, I'm out there screaming about it. I mean, you know, I, I, um, somebody, one of my, uh, you know, like the, the PR and marketing people were saying, you know, early on, like, you know, look, um, you know, giving this book away to a million people is really nice, but, um, you know, like if you really want to get attention for these issues, like having a bestseller, getting, you know, Amazon reviews and good reviews and, you know, all that kind of mm. stuff. So like, you know, whatever I can do to, you know, raise awareness, to get people to be aware of it. So I can, you know, go on shows like this and, you know, scream about this stuff. Like mm -hmm. that's, that's really, you know, that that's my, my whole life is revolving around that um, right now. So if you wouldn't mind, you know, an Amazon review, that would be great. But, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, like it's, it's really, it's a question of just getting out there and, and having these conversations and, you know, asking people to please take a different look at, um, their thoughts and you know nobody wants to be wrong and it's not a it's not a, you know it doesn't have to be adversarial um you know but look i mean it's, we're, 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 like people are dying we've got to stop this we just have to yeah okay i've got some questions that are yeah i, I call them my resilient questions but like i just i just i, I find them fun i'm always interested with the answers that that we get because um especially with what you've just said i'm i'm very big on self-compassion and i really want to know like how do you practice self-compassion how did that how did that how did you go from that man who was well i don't even know if you still i didn't get to this point whether you're still sad or not but <laughs> um how did you go from that that person and to the person you are today and where and how did you practice any um, self-compassion in that, in that moment, in that process? That, that's a great question. Um, I, you know, the, the, the buprenorphine works as an antidepressant, but it, it's, um, you know, it only goes so far, like it's, you know, circumstances come up that, that, you know, can make life worse. Um, I have more tools to deal with that now than I did before, but, you know, I've certainly fallen into, you know, black holes of depression over the years. I'm more resilient than I was, um, and I'm able to talk about it now. So that's, really helpful. Um, the self-compassion, I mean, I'm a lot less insecure than I was, but, um, you know, there, there's still, you know, self-hatred that, that comes and goes. Um, and, uh, I, I beat myself up. Um, I mean, I'm, I, I, <laughs> I wish I could say I'm good at self-compassion. I, I, I don't think I am. Um, I'm, 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 I'm really actually not. Um, I mean, you know, like with, with this, um, it's hard to see the, successes and the positive feedback only what i'm not doing you know well i've reached these people but i'm not reaching these people mm -hmm. uh you know so so i'm um i'm still driven very much by that um insecurity and uh you know i yeah i don't know okay okay um 
What is one quote that has impacted your life the most? My God. Um, yep. That's a good question. Uh, I mean, you know, lately um, I've been thinking a lot about this, uh, this quote that is attributed to Ben Franklin. I can't believe I'm quoting Ben Franklin. Um, Maybe it's, maybe he didn't actually say this, but it's, and, and he certainly didn't say exactly this because I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Um, It's something like, you know, change doesn't happen until those who are not affected are as outraged as those who are. Um, and, and that's really, you know, what I'm thinking about right now. Like I wouldn't be doing this if I wasn't affected by it, you know? Um, but, uh, I am. And so I'm doing it and it's my mission to tell everybody I know, uh, this is really important. You know, you got to do something, whatever. And, and, and I, I understand, I mean, you know, look, I, I worked in, um, an office where, you know, somebody comes around and they're, they're telling you, you know, my daughter's selling Girl Scout cookies, buy a box of Girl Scout cookies. And, you know, mm-hmm. you do it a few times and then you're like, you know, fuck you, dude. Like, I don't want to hear about this. My life doesn't revolve around your daughter's Girl Scout cookies. So, you know, I send these emails to friends and I always feel like, you know, they're, they're receiving them the way that, you know, you get a 10% off email blast from Crate and Barrel on, you know, coffee tables. Um, but it's really important. And, and I hope everybody gets as outraged um, as I am. Okay. And Franklin? <laughs> ben Franklin. Um, if you could think of a signal, I know you because we had a, we had a chat before um, we started about Twitter and Instagram. But if you had a, if you could sum up your life so far in 140 characters, oh my god, or less. No, no, so no, not it doesn't have to be 140 characters, but a sentence. What would that look like uh, to you right now? Uh, I actually just thought of something, so right, I'm just going to say it. Go for it. Um, uh, lost and found. Okay. Or lost then found. <laughs> lost then found. I mean, you know, I, I you know, I, I lost a lot of, fr- I, I didn't know why I was alive for the longest time. And I feel like this is what I'm di- supposed to be doing. So. Okay. Amazing. That was lucky. All right. <laughs> <laughs> what do you, what do you hold the most value in? Optimism or hopefulness? Ooh, that's interesting. Um, I mean, uh, I, I, can I deviate from that a little bit? Of course you can. Um, for me, like hope is the worst form of torture. Ooh, why? Say, say more on that. My default setting is, is extreme pessimism. Okay. So, um, when I start to think shit's going to work out, uh, it scares me you know? Mm-hmm. And like with, with this book, um, I mean, you know, I expected nobody was going to care. Nobody was going to like it, whatever. And I mean, you know, I got, um, I got this, this, uh, you know, great root, the Kirkus star thing. And, you know, all these people that I've admired for so long are, are, you know, blurbing it. And I'm just like waiting for them to all call me and be like, you know what, you're a fucking asshole. And we want our names taken off your book. Um, because we realize we hate you and you suck. Um, no, man. you know, so, um, <clears throat> so I'm, I'm <laughs> like, if I'm optimistic, then it's like, well, something like I'm, 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 I would be worried that I'm missing something. And if I'm hopeful that I'm nervous that my hopes are going to be, you know, destroyed. So I, I'm, I think I'm a little, um, I think I, I, I couldn't say which one is more valuable, but I'm certain that they would be more valuable if I, if I wasn't so, you know, fucked up in my head about both. So I, I don't know. That's fine. <laughs> what do people often get wrong about you? What misconceptions do they have? I mean, you know, I think when when people see, uh, you know, this guy wants to legalize drugs, I think a lot of assumptions are made, um, <clears throat> for sure. Um, I think also people probably assume that I'm very one dimensional. I mean, I, I make a, you know, I made a conscious choice for my social media profiles to only be talking about this stuff. So, you know, people might not know that, um, you know, I, I. I have a lot more going on than this. I mean, you know, my friends in, in real life um, barely know about this stuff, uh, you know, cause I don't really talk about it um, as much, you know, they, they, they know that I'm a, you know, Radiohead fanatic and uh, I play guitar and, you know, whatever. Um, so I, I think, you know, the kind of general public misses, uh, you know, most of me. Which is understandable. Yeah, I, I don't blame them for that. It's, I mean, it's my fault. <laughs> No, because it's like it's one of those things. It's like you, your, your, 
you're called to do something and that's what you speak right. about on a daily on a day to day. Whereas yeah. when the when the curtain's closed, you're talking right. about Radiohead and Yeah, I'm gonna things. go rock out, yeah. You're, you're, you're living a full life, that's that's what it is. Like Radiohead? Yeah. No, I've never I've never listened to them. But, oh my god. But right. I um for 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 the shame of being like excluded from my own uh, expelled from my own podcast recording. And you're um, and you're living in England. I mean, I, you, you know what? You should be ashamed. That's that's really uh, I'm, I'm horrified. <laughs> <laughs> Educate me in a moment. Um, All right, you got it. Yeah, I'm, oh. I'll send you a playlist. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, and just when you think of an authentic life, what does that look like for you? How does one live that? Wow. Um, I mean, I you know I I um. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but uh, I'm 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 doing it now. I mean, I'm unabashedly myself. Um, I I used to think twice before I said everything, and then second guess it, and you know say what I thought you wanted to hear, um, and I I cared what everybody thought. So like you know paralyzed with with that kind of stuff. I really. I mean, somebody said recently, like, you know, what's it, what's it like to have, you know, like your, your, you know, worst moments are now a matter of public record, um, you know, in, in like national newspapers. And when I said it doesn't bother me, knowing that I wasn't lying was an unbelievable feeling. I mean, you know, I, it, it, it's not easy for my family, obviously, but I really don't care what anybody thinks of me anymore. Mm. And that's an amazing freedom. Yeah. And I never thought I would experience that. Um, so that's amazing. I literally just saw this question on like I'm, I'm always doing psych, psychology archetype things somewhere, and there was a question in one of in this stuff, and it was like, "Oh, um, you're affected by what people think of you." And I looked at it and like strongly agree, disagree, strongly disagree, neutral, all those kind of things. And I looked yeah. at it and I just thought to myself, I actually, just don't care. <laughs> Like, but that's a that's far, great. that's a far cry to the person yeah. I was five, 10 years ago. Yeah. And that's just really interesting. And, and I'm always interested when people, when people say that, because it's, it's so reinforcing, it's so reassuring um, that more and more people are getting to a point of just absolute shamelessness. And that's, yeah. and that's a beautiful thing. It is. Um, thanks so much, David, for joining me on the show. Um, Thank you two books that you'd want to suggest to the community um two books uh i you know i think um i, I I'm, a, I'm a big fan of um amy dresner's my fair junkie um i was able to relate to a lot of that that kind of gave me permission to tell my story so um uh, and I've, I've gotten to know her very well um so and, and she's just an amazing person um so i'm gonna say that's a no-brainer and then you know um Infinite Jest, uh, David Infin- Foster Wallace. Infinite Jest. I mean, okay. you know, I think I think the the um, uh, you know the way that addiction is portrayed in that book is much more honest and accurate than than you know most of the addiction memoirs uh, you can read, mm-hmm. and it's certainly not an addiction book by any stretch. But um, and I mean, he happens to be my favorite writer anyway, so I, okay. I have no problem. I just, I just don't know anybody that's finished it. <laughs> a thousand page book guys so infinite jest david foster wallace and my and my fair junkie by did you say amy dresner amy dresner yeah amy dresner yeah. thank you so much david for joining me on this thank show you, um and i really enjoyed it and i loved everything that you said so thanks to everybody who's listening you can where can you find where can they find you david uh, so I'm, uh, my, my website is davidposes.com. Um, there's links to all of my social media. You can send an email. I, I respond to everything. So please get in touch. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm, uh, the little at sign and then David, the kick. Um, and, uh, I mean, you know, every, every, links are all over my, my website. So just go there and yeah. Thanks guys for listening and I will catch you all next week. This episode was edited and engineered by Pure Creation Media. Thank you again to David Poses for joining me. Don't hesitate to get in touch. And until next time, thank you for your trust.